It is a privilege to stand among you again today. Um, tell you what, I'm going to drop this mic. Is that okay if I drop this and just go with this? Are we good with the lapel only? I'm looking for a thumbs up or something back there. Yes, okay, we're good. Okay, good. I, just If that stayed there, I would whack it at some point, and it would be loud, and everybody would jump, and you'd think we were charismatic, and nobody wants that. So, so we're just going to move that mic to the side. We're going to go without it. Um, it. It is good, like I said, to be back this morning. I am very, very grateful for the welcome that this church continues to give to my family and to me as we ourselves, like I said, for those of you who are new, so am I. And let's be new together. And as, as Stephanie and I get used to the Gulf Coast and prepare for our move to Ocean Springs, we are thankful for the resources and the support that this church is giving us, the time and the home base and the welcome and the friendship. Cannot thank you enough for who you are being to us. Thank you. Um, since I last stood before you, we have added to our family. Kids have come home from college, and, and also we moved my mom from Birmingham here. Uh, she is here and, and is living, at, she will be a resident in Biloxi, so this is her hometown now. So some of you have asked her name. She is mom. Um, she's my mom. She can be mom to this church, so, so please welcome my mom. Thank you for that. Um, this morning, now let's turn in Scripture to Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. And in this chance that I have to be with you, and, and actually, Lord willing, this week and next week to stand before you, this morning I want to begin a conversation and ask this question. Why does God have us here? This church, why does God have us here? What are we to be about what does God want with this church? What is the message that we are to be taking to this world? Or, or if you let me put it like, like this, if we claim to love Jesus, and as we come here, we all look, we, we look good on Sunday mornings, we dress up and we say, yes, we're here because we follow Jesus. Well, if we're going to say that, then, then shouldn't we be about what Jesus is about? Shouldn't we love what Jesus loves? Well, what does Jesus love? He loves the church. The church is his body. The church is his bride, his family. And he loves her perfectly, even when loving her can be so hard. But this morning I want to take that idea and I want to turn it outward. Because while Jesus loves the church, he also loves the people of this world. I want to actually turn this morning to a topic that can make us shift uncomfortably to learning to love the lost as Jesus loves the lost. Now, most of us believe in evangelism. If I, if I asked you to raise, if I said, you know, hey, who here believes that the, we should be involved in evangelism? Who here believes that this church should be involved? I believe probably everybody here would raise their hands. But when we talk about evangelism, we usually like to talk about it in something that somebody else should be doing. And my friends, I want to say to you lovingly this morning that in view of the mercy of God, that for those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, that is a response that we are not allowed to have. So look with me to this text. This text that speaks of Jesus when he sees the lost. 
I want to look at his response and for us to pray that it would mark us more and more. So follow with me from Matthew 9. We're going to be reading verses 35 to 38. This is the word of God. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. Let's go to him as he says. Let's pray to the Lord of harvest as we, as we begin this. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your word that you have spoken and your word that was made flesh in Jesus Christ. Lord, make us people and followers of the word people of the book. But Lord, more than just people who can recite it and say what it says, make us people whose hearts and lives are changed by what you have done and what you have said and who you are. Make us a people who are after your own heart this morning, we pray. Amen. It is Memorial Day weekend, like I said, and so I want to begin with a military reference. Now, in what I'm about to tell you, I confess that I'm a man who has never worn a military uniform. I know there are men in here, men and women in here who have, and who have spent their career in that, so I'm going to speak to you of things that I have not experienced directly, but on this Memorial Day weekend, as we consider those who paid the ultimate price and and who died for us. I want to reference one of the fiercest battles of the recent war in Afghanistan, the Battle of the Ganjgal Valley. And in this battle, there was a, there was a village that had been a, a hotbed, a, a home base for the terrorists, for the bomb makers, for the militants. And so a company of Marines, a combined force of Marines and, and Army soldiers were tasked with going and, and occupying that village. Simple task. Not so simply, simply achieved because the village was at the end of a long, winding mountain highway with mountains on both sides as you went down the highway and the village itself lay at a dead end in the highway with mountains at the other side. So picture that with me. Highway, mountains on both sides and then mountains in front at the end. The military here, people here, are you picturing what I'm describing? A textbook place for an ambush. And that's exactly what happened. When when the soldiers got there, they went into the village and immediately the mountains erupted. Machine gun fire, rocket fire, uh, grenades raining down on them. Immediately at least four men were hit and wounded. And, and then others were taking heavy fire so that the company was forced to withdraw back to, to reconfigure. But as they pulled back, one man ran forward. He saw the people that had been hit, saw the people that were in danger, and he began to expose himself to enemy fire so that he could take the ones that were wounded and draw them to safety, drag them to safety. 
And one of them he even lifted up and put onto his back and, and ran down the highway carrying him back to the company where he could receive help. But then he did something even more amazing. He turned and he went back. Again and again. Again, exposing himself, making himself a target so that others could be rescued. He he spoke of it later and he said that he knew that he was going to die, expected to die, but he couldn't just do nothing. The men that he loved and cared about were, were under threat, were under attack, were in imminent danger. He had to do something. Eventually he rescued over 24 men and received the Medal of Honor for it. I want to speak to you this morning, though, of an even greater hero. One with even greater courage. I want to speak with you of one who willingly went where no one else wanted to go. One who willingly exposed himself to the fire and the attack of the enemy, not just knowing that and expecting that he might die, but knowing full well that he would die. One who died to defeat the enemy and rescue those whom he loved, those whom he knew were pinned down and helpless and dying under the attack of a deadly enemy. And in looking at that hero, I want to see how Jesus points the way for us who follow him. We who are in his footsteps, we who are to be running toward people, not from them. We who are to be warning people of the reality of, uh, and the danger of sin, to be telling people that hell itself awaits them in this life and in the life to come. We who are to be incredibly loving and compassionate and welcoming and rescuing of people whose lives are so broken and so lost and so far from God. People who were afraid that in the meantime that we will reject them as sinners. And too often they're afraid of that for good reason. So they don't come to us. They don't share with us. They don't come to our churches for healing. And so ultimately while we're thankful for places like this, places where we can worship and be fed and be built up, ultimately I want to speak to you how, uh, today about how we're to be going to them with life-saving intent. How we as a church are to carry the words of Jesus in the ways of Jesus. And that means we who call his name are to go forward and outward to those who are harassed and helpless and lost. But to do that, really first, we have to even see them. And that can be so hard. We have to learn to see the lost around. And now let me say, again, I'm thanking you for your welcome. You've been so kind to us. I I need to tell you, my goal today is not to offend. But it is to step on some toes. But as I step on toes, I put my own out in front and step on them first. For I speak to you today of things that I have failed so often in. We speak so well and so often about wanting the lost to be saved but then we're too busy for them. Not so with Jesus. Look at verse 35 of this text. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. 
And, and notice it says Jesus, he, he went through the towns, he went teaching, he went healing. I, I don't, I'm not trying to change scripture, but if we were to put this in our context, Jesus started in Bay St. Louis and went to Gulfport and went to Biloxi and then to Ocean Springs and beyond. And everywhere he went, he was teaching and, and healing and, and telling them. Now, now notice what he's doing. Uh, he, he's, as, here's one who can heal the sick. And you know the stories from the gospel. He's healing blind people. He's healing lepers. He's healing the lame. And, and when, that, when people see that, they react the way you would expect them to react. Word gets out. Here is one who can heal the sick. And so they come and Jesus heals them because he cares for them. But notice that's not all he's doing. He's telling them of the gospel. He's speaking to them of the kingdom. Here, even before he's gone to the cross, Jesus is telling them the good news that God loves sinners and dies for them. Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows that he could spend all of his time healing them of their various diseases. And they would still eventually die and go to hell. But if people hear the good news, if they know that there is a Savior, then, then though they will have troubles in this life, if they believe in God's provision and trust in him, then they will live forever with God. And so as Jesus looks at the crowds, he is moved by what he sees. Look at verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. When, when he saw them, I wonder in comparison, how do often do we see the crowds but not really see them at all? At our soccer games, at our school meetings, at our work, Guys, we rub, by, we rub shoulders with people every day who are eternal beings and we don't even stop to consider their destiny. Think with me for a moment about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's in Luke 10. You can turn there if you want. For, I'm not going to quote directly. For, you, you know the story. We, we tell it to our children. We teach it in VBS. There's veggie tales on it. We know the story of the Good Samaritan. But usually when we tell it, we, we tell you know, it's the story of the Good Samaritan, but who are the bad guys in the story, right? The priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side, who didn't stop and help. If we were to put a soundtrack to it, let me tell you, you don't want me involved with anything musical, but if Jeff and Gabby and, and Melba were to put a soundtrack to the parable of the Good Samaritan, you'd have that dark music when the priest and the Levite are on the scene. What I want to tell you is we're telling it wrong. What you need to know about the story of the Good Samaritan is that the priest and the Levite were not dreadful men. Rather, they were doing what was entirely reasonable. This man who's been beaten up in the story of the Good Samaritan, he's beaten, and the text says that he's near death. Well, there was a law against a priest touching a dead body, a priest touching a dead body. And that law had severe consequences. If the priest tried to help the man and then the man died, well, the priest would have been unclean for a full week. And he would have had to make sacrifices. And, and red heifers aren't cheap. And to do that, he would have had to stand in the line outside the temple with all the other unclean people, the sick 
and the lepers and the sinners. And they would have looked at him and they would have said, aren't you a priest? What what are you doing here? So it would have cost him economically. It would have cost him in standing. It would have been embarrassing. So in the end, the priest and then the Levite after him, they pass right by. They pretend not to see, not to hear the cries for help. They do that not because they were horrible men, but because their system made it easy for them to pass by. My friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that ours does the same thing. There's always a reason not to stop, not to pull over, not to get involved. It's always the wrong time. We're always so busy. There's always a reason not to get involved. For the last three or four New Year's, I've begun the year with my kids. We've got four kids in college And there's a student organization called the Passion Organization run by a man named Louis Giglio. I actually posted a video of his on my Facebook account this morning. But anyway, uh, for the last three or four years, we've begun at the Passion Student Conference in Atlanta to begin the new year. If you you want an awesome way to begin a new year, begin it in the Mercedes-Benz Dome with 65,000 students worshiping and praising Jesus Christ. It's an incredible experience. It's an incredible organization. And they're getting great teaching and they're worshiping. And and I love that my kids are there. These meetings, of course, it's college kids. So they go late at night and they're meeting and worshiping and singing. And then you get out late at night and you got to walk here on January 1st or January 2nd. you got to walk to your hotel that's blocks away in the middle of the night in downtown Atlanta. Do you know who hangs out in downtown Atlanta in the middle of the night? The people that we warn our kids against. The people that we sort of pull our purses and our wallets a little tighter when we pass by. The homeless, the, the, the panhandlers, the people who are looking, maybe the hucksters and the con men or, or the people who might do you harm. And look, I've, I've tried to instruct my kids to be wise. We don't just give out cash because that'll probably be drunk right down or shot right up or something like that. But, but I do want them to be compassionate, but, but we're busy and the meetings start early the next morning. And, and it struck me as I was walking with them. Here we are. There's 65,000 college kids streaming out with their Christian Bibles and their Christian CDs. Well, they don't use CDs anymore. Sorry, I just dated myself with that. But their Christian bumper stickers and their Christian stuff and their T-shirts and everything. And we've been worshiping Jesus, but we're pushing right by the lost and the homeless because we have somewhere to be. How often we can be like the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan. We just go out of our way to pass by the other side. We proclaim that we know Jesus. We proclaim that we love him. But how often we pass by, yes, those in physical need, also those in economic need. Or maybe most of all, those in spiritual need. How often do we refuse to even see them? Or to take time to to reach out in love with those who are spiritually broken and and lying in a ditch? And I know as I say that, you you might be saying back, but Mark, if I took the time to stop, haven't you seen what's up and down Biloxi and on the streets? And if I took the time to engage with every need around me or the people in my neighborhood, well, well, it's all I would do. Look, I get it. I've got lots that I have to do every day as well. 
And besides work, there's bills to pay and repairs to be made and errands to run and we've got kids and there's there's just so much going on in life. There's just so much on my plate. I, I, I want the lost to be saved. I just don't have the time. Look, I do get it. And all of those things I'm listing, they're important and maybe necessary in some ways to sustain life. But again, I'll ask you what I asked at the beginning. What is the reason why God has us here in this world? What is the purpose of this church and of the people in it? Now, when we start talking about purpose of life and chief end of life and things like that, you should recognize from the confession and the catechism, well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, how do we do that? We, we know Him And we make him known. But I wonder, will we be willing to take time away from the things of this earth, the pursuit of things that are not eternal? The acquisition of more things, the acquisition of more comfort, the acquisition of more security. Will we risk it all to care about the eternal lives of the people who are all around us? And yes, it begins with our families. Disciple your children. Have worship at home. Teach them well. But I'm also talking about eternity and the lives and the faces and the people we simply pass by every day. They may be strangers to us, but they are not to God. They were made in His image, every one of them. That image may be dirty and muddy and broken now, but they were made in his image and they are precious to him. Are we willing to even see them? And if we do, then are we willing to let our hearts break for them as Jesus' heart breaks for them? Again, look look at this verse in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Let me allude to the story of the Good Samaritan again. When the Samaritan shows up on the scene and it plays the hero music, why did he stop when the others passed by? He saw the man lying in the ditch and beaten and bloodied. And Luke 10.33, again, we don't have to take the time to turn there, but look it up later. Luke 10.33 says this. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. It's the exact same word used for our Savior here. It's what Jesus, who by the way is the true great good good Samaritan, it's what Jesus models for us here. It's the exact same word. In fact, when Jesus saw the crowds, the crowds were easy to see. We, We see them every day and we become numb. But Jesus really saw them. He saw them for what they were. He saw them for who they were. They were harassed and helpless, and seeing them, he had compassion. Literally, if we were to get into the original language there for what that word means, we would most directly translate that Jesus was brokenhearted for them. How long has it been since your heart or mine have, have broken for the lost? Jesus really cared. And that's what made all the difference. 
What about me? What about you? There, there's so many times when we just see people as passing objects or avatars or somebody to engage with to get what we want. Do we, do we take the time to really consider what they're going through? Do we take the time to really hear them? Even if we're listening, are we just listening to formulate our responses rather than listening to really hear? The biblical Christian understands, I alluded to it earlier, that, that, that everyone we pass by, they are eternal. And they are fallen. And Jesus saw the crowds that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think of that, this defenseless animal alone and wandering and in great danger. My friends, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. I know the things we see on the news. I know what's out there. I know that there are people who are very, very different than we want to be. But hear this. The non-Christians that we pass by and engage with and interact with every day are not the enemy. Hear that again. The non-Christians are not the enemy. Even when they hate us. Even when they reject us. Even when they persecute us or when they don't vote like we do or dress like we do or act like we do or live like we do. Even if they fly under flags that are completely different than ours. They are not the enemy. They are the ones who are in danger from the enemy. Will we run from them or run to them? Look at the terms that the Bible uses for them. They are lost. They are blind. They are dead in their sins. Or in this text, they are harassed and helpless. Do we care? Are we willing to have compassion on them? As Stephanie and I prepare and pray for this work that we're going to be doing in Ocean Springs to start a church there, one of the verses that we're already praying for over that work is 1 Thessalonians 2.8 that says this, We loved you enough to share not only the gospel, it, is, it always begins with the gospel, the gospel is the only thing that can change lives. But Paul says, We loved you enough to share not only the gospel, but our lives as well, because you had become dear to us. Are we willing to do this? You, me, together, are we willing to do that? And again, I, you might say, but Mark, don't you see what's on the news? Don't you, see what's don't you see how crazy it is out there? How scary it is? Or even locally, you know, yeah, it's good to talk about all this, but, but you wouldn't believe what my neighbor said or what my neighbor does or what my neighbor is into. Yes, I would. I've had that neighbor too. And Jesus said it is for the lost sheep of this world that he came to die. What about us? Are we willing to die to ourselves and our comfort and our agendas? 
And again, I, I get it. Look, I, I go on vacation. We used to come on vacation to the mountains, I guess, uh, to, to the beach. I guess I can't do that. You know, so go to the vacation to the mountains. And, and I used to live in, you know, right next to the park. And Cades Cove was where I was every Friday night. And I know how wonderful it can be. And it can be just so peaceful. And Lord, I don't want to go back and engage. I know, I get it. Are we willing to really see? To really hear? To really care? Will we have compassion that drives us to them? Now, can I be honest with you and all that? I mean, I've been honest to this point, but can I be further honest, personal? I don't consider myself a great evangelist. Maybe that's not a good thing to confess to a church that's supporting me as, as I go and start a church of evangelism. But, but what the Lord has given me by his grace, Lord willing, is, is an ability to be approachable to people. Sometimes it drives my family crazy how I get in conversations with waiters and waitresses and things like that everywhere I go. For them to come to me, to feel like they can share, to feel like I care. Can I be honest with you further? There's times when I've blown it bad. There are times when, when I'm out and about and someone will say, hey, aren't you a pastor? And there's times when I want to say, no, not today. There's sometimes when it's just been a, a long week or a long day or I'm just tired of the burdens. There's sometimes I want to say, no, not tonight. I'm off duty. Let me be further honest with you. There's times when I've absolutely been the opposite of who I'm supposed to be in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you just a very brief story. When we were still living in Birmingham, it had just been one of those days. Pastors have those days too. Sometimes because of the people in the church and the elders and the deacons or whatever. And, and it had just been one of those days. And I just had it way past here and I just had to get out of town, out of Dodge for a while. The, the kids were at work and Stephanie was actually in Jackson. And, and so I, I, just, I was like, you know what? I just got to get out of town. So I hopped in the car and I, you know, cars can sometimes be escapes. We try to make them. And, I, and so I just started driving south from Birmingham to just get away from it all, just to leave it all behind. And I drove south for about an hour and a half as fast as I could, probably faster than I should and I was in the town that's about an hour and a half south of Birmingham, Montgomery, Alabama, when I started to notice that I, that I had jumped in the car too fast and I hadn't checked the gas. And now the gas light was blinking at me, you know, not just that sort of, hey, you need it soon, but you need it now. And I was flying south on I-65, going south of Montgomery, on the south side of Montgomery, and I had to stop. If you're ever trying to run away from a bad day and trying to run south on I-65, the exits south of Montgomery are not where you want to stop. It's the wrong side of town. I didn't have a choice. So I pulled off, and again, I'm just, I'm just mad that I need gas. And I pull over to the first gas station, and I'm not even out of the car, and here he comes. You know him. The guy who lives at the gas station. The guy who's there 24-7. You know the guy I'm talking about. I'm not even out of the car, and here he comes, and he's starting the, sir, if, if you have a few dollars, could I have this, and could I, could I you know, and, and I'm just, mm, I'm over it. And I stood up, and look, I'm not big, I'm not fast, I, I, excuse me, I'm not fast, I'm not smart, I'm not whatever, but I am big. 
And so I just sort of rose up and I, and I went, no, stop. It's probably the loudest it's ever been in this Presbyterian church, right? I said, stop right there. I don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. He hung his head. And he walked over to the little grocery store that was there and he sat down on the curb. Now I'm filling up my car with gas and it is the slowest fill up ever in my life. You know what the Lord's doing on me the whole time? He's telling me how I just treated that man. And I knew what I had to do. So I finished filling up gas and put up the nozzle and I walked over and actually sat down on the curb next to the man. I said, sir, I said, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. Let me buy you a sandwich. Let me buy you a, a Coke or a, you know, a juice or something like that. Let me buy you lunch. So we did. We went inside. He picked something out, warmed it up in the microwave. We sat down on the curb again. And, and I sat with him and talked with him while, while he ate, listened to his story. And then, then at the end, when he was done, he looked at me and he said, so what do you do? What's your job? Oh, I wanted to tell him anything but the truth. But I looked at him and I said, well, sir, I'm a pastor. And with grace that I did not deserve. This man was showing more grace than I had. He looked and he said, you know, I thought you might be. I thought I could see the love of Jesus in you. He hadn't. But he was being gracious. There are times when I've blown it so bad. But there's also been a few times, sometimes when by taking just the time to show up and be present with people, to hang out where they are, learning to ask a few questions, learning to listen to some stories, maybe learning to really listen and not run by. There's been times when I've had the sweetest, most awesome, most holy privilege in the world, the privilege to be with them at that moment of crisis when they need the gospel the most. When eternity hangs in the balance, and in that moment, they are finally crying out for God. I've been there, standing in the door with a deputy, who while he was at work all night on his shift, his wife cleared out the entire house. I mean the entire house, every piece of furniture. She took everything, including the dog and the kids, and left nothing but a note on the floor that said, don't try to find me. I'm gone. And I stood there with the deputy wondering what he was going to do from there. I've been there in the Waffle House with a waitress who, who told me how she was the, the grandmother to the restaurant, but also the grandmother to her family. And her family was so messed up and so screwed up. So, and her children were, were, so, were, were so hooked on and addicted to things, so much so that now her 12-year-old granddaughter had been taken from her, her son's house and brought to her house to live with her. But now in all the stress and the things, the granddaughter had started cutting herself. And the waitress asked me, she said, could Jesus really love us as much as he says he loves us? And my friends, when people start to feel like we're really listening, like we care, they will unburden themselves and they will trust you like you wouldn't believe. 
Just a, just a week or two ago, I was over in Ocean Springs one night, and I met a musician, and, and I heard his songs, and I asked him one question. I said, Josh, it sounds like there's a lot of pain in your songs. Can you tell me about that? And for 20 minutes, he poured out his life with me, nonstop, off of one question. When people feel like we care. Guys, the image of God is crying out through the lives of people around us, and too often we, me included, too often we have missed it. Are we willing to stop? Are we willing to slow down? Are we willing to really hear and really care? And I know even to talk about it in ways like that or tell stories like that, it sounds glorious at times, but you need to know the reality is far different. To really get involved means that we'll be in the middle of messy relationships. It means that you will love people who are often hard to love. That we will embrace prodigals who are covered with the mud and the filth like like I talked about last time I was here. But to have hearts that are matched to God's heart is to know something so beautiful and so precious in our own lives that we want to make it known in the lives of those around you. And I warn you, they won't come to us as neatly wrapped up packages ready to pray a sinner's prayer and ready to tithe and ready to sit in the pews. They will be broken. They will be needy. They will make self-defeating and self-frustrating choices. They will often do things just to see how we react, to see if we pull back or if we're still willing to engage and come alongside. Will we get shocked when they do that? Will we be offended Will we be like all the other religious people that they've known in their lives who bring nothing but judgment? Or will we finally be the ones who bring the message of Jesus in the manner of Jesus? Will we look with the eyes of Jesus? Will we we see with the heart of Jesus? In a rushed and hectic world where we realize that, that being a Christian is about loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and then loving others more than we love ourselves and our own comforts and our own agendas. Will we have the compassion of Jesus for those who are harassed and helpless and lost and in danger? Will we look and believe the words of revelation and the promise that one day there will be around the throne people from every race and tribe and nation and tongue and that God will fulfill his great promise, his great commission. It is simply our calling and our privilege to be a part of him doing so. You know, it really is the way of our Savior. And the way of people who themselves are grateful for the grace that we have received. When we read, Jesus saw the crowds that they were harassed and helpless, do we recognize from what we have been saved ourselves? Are we grateful? Are we moved? Do do we, so so that in, in view of God's mercy, we will offer our lives as living sacrifices to live as, as those who've been plucked from the sea and now we're going with the, with the lighthouse of the gospel to those who are still in the waves. Will we remember? That was me. 
that was me. And he saved me. And now I want to be part of saving them. There was a little girl named Machiko. She was going, it was a school day, and she was going with her friends down from her school to the local museum. So they had to leave the school and go down to the, to the museum. And they were walking down the street the way school children walk down the street. You've seen it, like little ducks in a row. You know, the teacher's leading the way, and then everyone's holding hands behind them, one after another after another down the street. Machiko was the last in line as they walked down this street in Hiroshima, Japan, on August 6th, 1945. And the line turned a corner, one student after another, Machiko in the back, and as, they, as the last one before Machiko turned the corner, so that now she's still the last one around, in a flash, they were gone. Machiko was around the corner, so she was saved from the heat and the blast of the flash. But she was not saved from the, from the heat of the fire that came, the heat wave that came, and she was burned severely from head to toe. And a few days later, as the nation saw what had happened, as the soldiers came in and as they occupied, and as the newsreels came with them, and as the pictures came back to America of the destruction and of a little girl named Machiko, the voice of a nation went up. A nation that knew of Pearl Harbor and the murder of thousands and the march at Bataan and all the, all the atrocities and all the horrible things, the nation that knew what had happened, but when they saw what had happened to this little girl, a voice cried out in compassion and said, bring her to us. And Machika was brought to America where she received the best of care and her life was saved. She eventually died just a few years ago as an old woman. Brothers and sisters, a nation cried out in compassion because they saw what the fire could do. That was a fire that lasted for seconds. We who follow Jesus know of a fire that lasts for eternity. And its effects are being felt now in this life. Do you not, with the knowledge of what the fire can do, do you not have compassion on the lost? If you'd somehow been able to be there on that street knowing what was about to happen, you would have said to, to Machiko, run, run. Despite all the hurt, despite all the evil, despite all the things that her people had done, you would have said, run, the fire is coming. Our God and compassion speaks no less through us to this world. To see them, to have compassion on them, and to say, it doesn't have to be this way. Run. Run from the fire. Run to the cross. Run to the Savior who loves you so well. Will we say it? Pray with me. Our Father God, as we worship you this morning, make us not only a worshiping people, but a people who are changed by your gospel. A people who respond. A people who look more like Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, we need your grace and compassion as much or as more as any. Having received it, Lord, may we not hoard it to ourselves. Make us those who share freely and who speak openly with the love and the compassion of Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.